We had to work on something that really matters. We needed to figure out something that's worth solving, not just for ourselves, but for, for these initial customers. And I think the way to create the world in which we have more female founders is by creating a great example of just wildly successful female founders. Data downtime matters because it actually drives businesses and drives the people's decisions about that business. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm here with my colleague at GGV, Oren Younger. Hey, Oren. Hey, Glenn. And we are thrilled to welcome Bar Moses, co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo Data, a company that's on a mission to accelerate the world's adoption of data by improving data reliability and reducing data downtime. GGV is lucky to have invested in Monte Carlo's Series A earlier this year alongside our friends at Excel. And this episode is part of our early stage series where we're highlighting younger companies to examine the issues and challenges these businesses uniquely face. Prior to founding Monte Carlo, Barr built the customer data and analytics team at Gainsight, where she helped grow the company tenfold in revenue. And Nick Mehta, the CEO of Gainsight, has been a guest previously on Founder Real Talk. So we're excited to continue the Gainsight lineage. Barr has a wealth of experience and ideas that could span many episodes, but we're excited to focus on some important topics with her today. Barr, welcome to Founder Real Talk. So excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start from the early days in your career. You started, you served in the Israeli Air Force as a commander of an intelligence data analyst unit before working as a management consultant at Bain and Company. That, that sounds like a pretty contrasting first job after the armed forces. I'm curious how these experiences influenced and impacted your trajectory and helped you get to where you are today. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Israel. And so after high school at age 18, I was drafted to the Israeli Air Force. Definitely an experience that very much um, shaped me and, and experiences after. So just to set the context a little bit for what that actually is, you know, I was 18 years old, you know, first as sort of an analyst or data analyst myself, and then shortly after as a commander of a unit, you know, I was maybe 18 and a half or 19 years old, so responsible for a large group of 18 years old. And so I had a lot of responsibility as, at an early age, right? And, you know, you're basically given a tremendous amount of responsibility for this group of soldiers. It can be anywhere between 10, 20 to 80 soldiers. And you're responsible for a few things. First, for their professional development. So actually making sure that they have the skills and the training, but also for their well-being. So making sure that they're like sleeping and eating. We were in a kind of an army base and, you know, went back home sort of once, once a month or so. And, you know, kind of as, a, as an 18-year-old kid, you do that without any prior training, without any prior experience, no sort of, uh, no undergrad before that. But you know what? It worked. Um, like people sort of, you know, kind of um, step up and make it happen. And we were able to provide data that sort of helped save lives. We were actually uh, participated in the 2006 war and, and made, you know, was able to make a really big difference and were actually sort of awarded or commended uh, with an award for outstanding performance. And so what I learned from that is that, you know, if you take people who are young um, and maybe they don't even have the right, or you don't know if they're right, but they don't have the training or the skill set or the experience, and but you set them up with the right motivation and values and mission, 
they really step up and and they, you know, if, if they have those things in place, they can do great things, even if they've never done that before. And so as a founder, you know, that sort of gives me the confidence to hire mm. um, young, bright people that, you know, already can make a huge impact on our company today, even if they haven't done the exact same thing many years before. Really interesting. Yeah, it was a great experience. Definitely learned a lot about leadership and grit and motivation. And then later on, uh, so moved to the Bay Area, actually went to went to Stanford. And shortly after that, uh, as you mentioned, joined a, as a management consultant at Bain. Worked with a number of, de- of sort of tech companies, but also worked at uh, with private equity. I'll give a couple examples there. But basically, kind of we were supporting M&A deals on very short timelines. So you have like two to four weeks on average to get super smart on a topic, uh, learn a lot about it, collect a lot of data, form an opinion, and then make a recommendation uh, to make a decision for an M&A activity or M&A deal. And, you know, just to give it as an example, I work with a semiconductor company that wanted to enter the IoT market. This was the very, very early days of IoT. So this was, you know, we were just starting to think about the wearables market. Everyone has like a Fitbit or something like that today. But back then, that was really, really early. Yeah. And we had like three or four weeks to basically get really get really smart in that market. I didn't know anything about it. I'm going to actually make a go, no-go decision on, on a big, you know, go-to-market strategy for a very large semiconductor company. And, you know, I think one that teaches you not to be afraid to just lean into things that you don't know, jump into them and, and have the confidence to, to get smart on a topic. And as a founder, you actually need to get smart on very many topics. You need to know everything about every function that you have when you're building a company. And then second, I've watched and learned from many people making lots of strategic decisions with very limited information, actually. And that's also very helpful as a founder, kind of figuring out um, how do you, you know, what customers do you work with? What is your company's strategy? A whole set of decisions that you have to make with limited information that's that's often not, you know, not as perfect as you'd like. Awesome. So you were at Gainset for almost four years, leading the team responsible for customer data and analytics when you encountered the problem that Monte Carlo now solves. What made you believe that you were onto something? Yeah, so at Gainsight, uh, had a ton of fun, uh, did a lot of very cool things. Among them, one of them was I, I was leading the team called Gainsight on Gainsight, which we called uh, Gong for short. And it was an interesting time. This was 2016. And we um, we were starting to get very data-driven as a company. So we wanted to report a lot more on how we were sort of using our product and our customers and really deeply understand our business and, and use data as a competitive advantage. And bad data was just a reality we had to live with. Like I remember, you know, we were responsible for reports that like our board was looking at and our CEO was looking at, and the numbers were, were like wrong quite often. And that was really frustrating, right? I would just wake up every week and, and something else broke or something else was wrong. And not only that, I was the last person to know about it. You know, somehow Nick met our CEO, had a sixth sense could always find those issues before me or, you know, our customers found them. And, you know, that that was, you know, kind of a very frustrating experience. But also, you know, I was also curious, like, am I the only one that's sort of dealing with this or how are other people in, in our shoes managing this? And we just learned that, you know, the, the way that people de- dealt with that back then and still to a large degree today is we just set up a kind of manual way to verify the numbers every day. Like either myself or someone on my team would wake up every day, look at their reports and make sure that they check out. Sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Very fun. (laughs) But also a little insane, right? I was like, what is going on here? How how is this possible? 
And I remember, you know, we sort of, I sort of called my team together and we got into a room and we were like in front of this huge kind of whiteboard and we like mapped out our entire data, like where it starts and how it all, you know, gets moved and transformed and analyzed and how it sort of ends with a report. And I was like, holy mother, we need to like manually verify every step of this thing. <laughs> what are we doing? Right. And so we actually sort of hacked together kind of a bare bone solution that, you know, worked for us. It was, you know, obviously not not a perfect solution, but it was actually very meaningful. And then we actually implemented for our customers too. And it was very helpful for them as well. And I think that was the moment when I, when I was like, you know, I'm not an engineer, but someone should build this. <laughs> you know, this, this is a big problem. And the more that companies actually want to use data, um, the, the, the bigger the impact that this will have. Got it. And so when we met in 2018, you just decided to take a year off and explore the data downtime problem space, the, the very same problem we just described. How did you approach this year and what is it, its importance in the Monte Carlo story? So the first thing I did was actually go on a seven-day silent meditation retreat, uh, which was uh, terrifying and exciting all at the same time for someone who likes to talk. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I survived that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I uh, highly recommend. <laughs> but, no, but seriously, look, I, at the time, sort of left what I considered was a world-class job in a world-class company. And I knew that whatever I did next, I wanted to be able to work with, you know, a world-class team. And so for this next endeavor to be worthwhile for me and for whoever I work with, I wanted to work on something that I could define as being a unicorn grade product in a unicorn grade market. Like that was bar and still to the very day is. And so I actually took the time to explore different, a number of different ideas. Some of them were terrible. <laughs> so some of the ideas that I worked on, nobody cared about. So I would like ask someone and they would just never come back to me or, you know, the reaction was very mild, but that was great because it gave me a sense of what an idea that's not worthwhile, at least for me to pursue, gave me a good benchmark. And then when I started talking to people about, or to data people about their problems and data downtime as a pain point, the reactions were so, so strong, you know, sort of stepping out from, from my personal experience, I, I mentioned that you know, everyone has scars on the back, but I wanted to understand whether am I the only person or is there a bigger problem in the market? And so I actually spoke to over 100 data leaders, uh, many of them cold calls, many of them people that I didn't actually know, all the way from 10 people startups to sort of large organizations like Netflix, just to understand how they're thinking about this. And just learn that this is a huge problem, has a huge impact on companies and will only grow in its importance. And so that really gave me the conviction and the evidence that then allowed me to sort of go and recruit people, raise money, get our initial customers, et cetera. So I'd say it was a very critical year. I mean, just in addition, on top of that, um, Leora, my co-founder, who's actually a second time co-founder, throughout that year, I was actually able to sort of pull him into some calls just to get his perspective. You know, like, am I, am I crazy or is, are people actually interested in this thing? And, you know, as someone who's already built a startup and seen it, he would tell me things like, Bart, that's just a not normal call. What you just like, it's not normal that people will get on a call and get so excited that they like want you to implement the product tomorrow. <laughs> right. Like, that's crazy. People would just say, like, can you get started tomorrow at 4 p.m.? <laughs> we still say that today, actually. We still have customers who do that. And so having that sort of uh, perspective was really helpful. And then actually that helped me recruit him as my co-founder as well. You're getting his insights, but actually convincing him that he should join on that 
on the journey. <laughs> well, being a good salesperson is all is definitely one of one of the key attributes of being a good founder, right? So you, you did did well you did well there. <laughs> Monte Carlo is a very cool name. How did you guys come up with that, and what sort of the derivation? I know a lot of founders struggle with naming their companies. Curious what your process was like. Yeah. So my first kind of encounter with Monte Carlo was actually when I, I, so I mentioned that I went to Stanford and I worked at the statistics department for a while. My dad is a physics professor. So I thought I was going to be a professor too. I ended up failing him and not doing that. I did get to work with Monte Carlo simulations. And just for folks who don't know, Monte Carlo is basically, or Monte Carlo simulations is a way to predict an outcome when you don't actually have a full analytical model of the problem. And so instead, you try to simulate the problem over and over again to see what the outcome might be. And actually, like a relevant example of this is like the upcoming election where it's very hard to predict the outcome. But uh, organizations like 538, for example, they run sort of tens of thousands of simulations across all the different states, look at the collective results. And based on that, they're able to predict the overall outcome. So there's many cool applications for Monte Carlo simulations. Specifically for us, honestly, we didn't have a lot of time to come up with a name. <laughs> you know, we were going to sign a, actually like a contract to start an engagement with a customer, and we just needed a name ASAP <laughs> to get going with that. And so, you know, my inspiration was actually Snowflake. I wanted a name that was both, on the one hand, approachable, but also had its roots in the data world. So Snowflake is a type of a schema uh, for folks who don't know. And so I actually like opened my college stats book and reviewed option. One of them was Markov chains which sounded really bad. <laughs> so I crossed that out. And then I saw Monte Carlo. And I remembered, you know, my work with it. And and that's it. I just fell in love with it and um, called it a day. They say necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, needing to name your company because you have a customer that wants to pay you. <laughs> that's a good. <laughs> that's a good reason to, uh, to pick a name quickly. Well, it's really stuck. It's a great name. And speaking of naming, you've also coined the term I mentioned in the introduction, data downtime for this category that you've created. Category creation is a is a tough thing. Tell us a little bit about this category and you know why data downtime is the right sort of catchphrase for it. Yeah, so I think some of the kind of in sort of thinking about category creation, one of the things that I find help most is anchoring the category to something that people are somewhat familiar with. So it's a little bit foreign, but not completely foreign. Mm. And actually, you know, one of the sort of best corollaries that I think about is actually actually comes from sort of website or application downtime. And so, you know, taking all of us kind of 20 years ago, you know, if your website was down, you know, maybe someone in marketing cared about that. Maybe. Right. I don't even know if you had someone who was responsible for the website, then they would notice that the website was down. Maybe maybe businesses didn't even have a website back then. But now your entire business online, it's a very big deal when your website is down. We take it very seriously. We actually measure downtime for applications and we optimize our business around it. There are, in fact, entire teams, DevOps teams, um, that are created specifically for the purpose of measuring, optimizing, and managing application downtime. And this, this evolution has happened in the last couple of decades as the importance of your applications became front and center for organizations. Now, when you think about data in particular, you know, five to 10 years ago, data was something that maybe someone in finance looked at once a quarter when you were reporting numbers to the street. You know, maybe you could get away without anyone in data. Maybe you could, you know, just sort of have a couple Excel sheets and call it a day. 
And so in that situation, it's totally fine when your data is is down or, you know, is not accurate or doesn't really work because there's so few people relying on it for your business. Today, the situation is completely different, right? The number of people in an organization who are using data is very large and growing. They're looking at data all day long. They're using reports to make important business decisions. And even taking that a step further, people use machine learning models to actually make decisions on their behalf. And so suddenly there's this big change where data downtime matters because it actually drives businesses and drives the people's decisions about that business. And so in the same way, we thought it's worthwhile, first of all, to think about what that means and to measure it and to manage it. Um, And we're actually seeing sort of data reliability uh, teams rise in, in companies where they are focused on minimizing data downtime. And so we decided that it's actually important to give it a name so that people can actually talk about it, understand it, and work to fix it over time. That's really cool. Super interesting. So the content you publish seems to really hit home with data execs and evangelize data downtime. What is your secret of creating the buzz organically? How do you go about it? I think data downtime is currently, for a very short period of time, is bigger than Monte Carlo. Uh, You actually announced data downtime before Monte Carlo. Tell us a little bit more. So we really focused on content probably from from day one. Trying to think about the the first date that we actually wrote our first content, the first data downtime piece might have been, you know, right around the time was the company that was founded or even earlier. But from the get-go, you know, we really, really focused on customer pain points and we write from that vantage point only. So I, you know, I'm very, very targeted about that. And we write every blog post with a very particular persona, sometimes a very particular customer in mind. And so we really listen carefully in kind of conversations um, with our customers and in the community throughout throughout the week. And, you know, really to sort of pay attention, what is top of mind for, for folks? Like, what are they worried about? What's the fire drill that happened last week that sort of derailed the entire data team? What was that thing? Why was that a big deal? Um, this new OKR that they're working on for Q4, why do they care about that? The, no- the novel architecture that they want to implement in 2021, what are those things? And then we write that based on what's kind of high priority for them. We do. We obviously add our own perspective and views and incorporate what we learn from the community, but that is really the, the, the main kind of uh, key for content. And then I would add that we also make it, or we try to make it quite approachable and make it easy to understand. So it's, you know, thoughtful and presenting sort of an interesting perspective, but not overly complex. You know, an example with data downtime, we could have made those articles very technical and talk all about kind of schema changes and duplicate values and null values and statistics and a lot of, you know, technical, fascinating technical topics that we could start with. But we did focus on the stories on our stories on trying to be vulnerable about this how it impacts people, and also suggested of overall methodology, something that people can, you know, kind of implement tomorrow. So I think those are sort of the reactions that we get. People get connected to those stories. They see themselves in that content. And they also pick up, you know, if we're lucky, they pick up one or two things that they can actually um, use and try on their own and in their organization. That's super cool. And I know they're approachable because I am able to read them. So (laughs) testament to uh, the real approachability of the content. (laughs) On top of content, the community aspect is also huge in your go-to-market. You're building a community of chief data officers who are helping shape the future of Monte Carlo. How do you do it? Yeah, so I think both content and community are things that we focus on from day one. And we just realized that 
if we're starting a new category, those things have to be front and center for us as a company. In fact, they have to become, you know, sort of a cornerstone and something that we're just very good at at a company. It can't be something that's minor. And so I personally uh, prioritize and spend a lot of time on that getting to know people in the community, reaching out proactively, taking lots of introduction, just spending a lot of time to get to know people and understand them. And as soon as we kind of started Monte Carlo, Monte Carlo is also taking an active part in that community itself, whether that's participating in conferences, putting together events where people can actually connect and share those problems, um, get to know each other. We uh, sometimes co-write content with people in the community and so have good ways to sort of have them involved as well because people in the community have amazing stories and thoughts about data downtime, but also about the data industry in general. And so we very much approach this as part of creating category means that you take an active role in these things and you have to think about them from day one. So Barry, you've talked to us about your seven-day silent retreat and your year of kind of, you know, really exploring different ideas and really getting excited about this one, having to name data downtime quickly as a customer was hunting you down. I want to focus on what it's like to get your first set of customers, uh, particularly in this as a newer category. You know, nobody had budget to spend on this problem, even if this problem resonates with them. And it's been really cool to watch you guys start to scale. But take us back to you know, trying to close your first few customers. How do you do that as a startup when you don't have, uh, you know, a, a number of reference accounts you can point to already? You know, we really have to do that cold start problem. Really curious how you guys overcame that that challenge. Great question. And I wish there was a there was a silver bullet or magic trick that I could pull out. But you know, I'll say we also had a high bar for ourselves at the beginning in terms of we wanted customers who truly had the pain point and not necessarily, you know, folks who kind of like are doing us a favor or that we know really well. It had to be someone who fit what we thought would be a good a good example of future customers, someone who really felt the pain point and needs a solution immediately for it, and then someone who shares our vision for what the world should look like when there is a solution like that. And so Finding someone like that is not easy, <laughs> but I think the the way that we've approached that is probably a combination of everything that we've talked about so far, right? One is we had to work on something that really matters. We needed to figure out something that's worth solving, not just for ourselves, but for for these initial customers. They had to care about it enough to give you know to give us access and time and money, which is you know I'd say time is the most expensive for for our customers. So it meant it had to be something that they are literally waking up, sweating up at night about. Otherwise, it wouldn't happen. So I think that's the first thing. The second is we had to build our trust and credibility. We needed to get to know people. We needed to create content that people would recognize us for. We needed to be part of the community. That had to be part of part of this for folks to have that, that trust for sure in the early days, but also today. And then finally, we knew this would be hard. And so we wanted to remove as many of the barriers for data teams as we could. And so we actually designed our product with that in mind. So we we try to make it as easy as possible for people to engage with us by making, for example, in, onboarding incredibly easy. So onboarding, I actually time it with a timer. Uh, last count is 19 minutes. And we're going to stick to that average. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we made onboarding incredibly easy. We built our, our architecture with security first in mind so that 
we try to remove all these barriers that would we know would come up and invest in those in the beginning. And I think it's, you know, probably a combination of all these. So so no magic trick, just a lot of hard work. <laughs> a lot of hard work. I think it's really cool that you guys think about like and thought about it the early in the early days of customer adoption as a, it sounds like it was a process, right? And so like you're getting to know people, you're becoming respected in the community, you're sharing your ideas. And then I love the idea of, you know, really focusing on on an onboarding that allows you to demonstrate value quickly and, and have your customers feel like feel that this is worth their time very fast. Warren and I work, are working with a few other companies that share that sentiment. And it's just so important and something that's frequently overlooked as founders are building products and forget like at first, at first touch and getting to value fast has got to be of paramount importance when you're, when you're designing and building product. Very cool. Yeah. People have hundreds of priorities. You need to get to the top three. Yeah. So speaking of focus, speaking of focus, I want to turn that around. Yes, you need to get to the top three, but how have you guys thought about focus? This is a problem, as you've described it, that is felt by companies large and small in you know, kind of every industry all around the world. That's exciting for us because we think that ultimately means you have a really big market to go after. But obviously, you don't want to boil the ocean as a small startup. So how have you thought about you know, finding an ideal customer profile and what's the process been like to, to, to make sure that you, you know, you don't boil, try to boil the ocean and, and really stay focused up front. So you're right. We definitely shot in all directions at begin with, <laughs> to begin with. And mostly it was really to test out the market. Mm -hmm. So we engaged, as I mentioned, anywhere from, you know, fortune fifties to 10 person companies to understand how they're thinking about this problem? Do they care about it? Who are the people at that com at those companies that care about that? How does it stack against other priorities that they have? Really, sort of deeply understand their perspective on this. We were pleasantly surprised, <laughs> but surprised that that strategy worked really well. You know, we learned a lot, and we had inroads with sort of a very broad set of customers or a pretty very broad spectrum of companies, which was great news because you know we strongly believe that the market for this is huge. On the other hand, as an early stage startup, we can't serve all of them. And so we realize we can't do any, everything. Um, we have to find some sweet spot where we can both have strong impact and the problem is severe and these customers that align with our vision that we can partner with at this stage. Mm -hmm. And so that helped us narrow in on a particular sort of focus or good fit for us. So as an example, we need to figure out who's a specific persona that cares most about data downtime. And so, you know, how can you tell at the outset whether an organization should care about data downtime? Well, first, if they have someone in the organization named data, that's a great first step, <laughs> right? But then if they have someone who's very senior in, in the organization, maybe a chief data officer or VP or head or director of data, if they have that, that title, that also signals that the importance of data in that organization is growing and that they're more likely to be actually users of data and therefore experience data downtime. And so that helped us narrow in on, on the right persona. You know, I'm trying to think of an example of a company or sort of a segment where we're trying to, to stay, at least to start, start with, you know, like uh, big sort of um, kind of traditional banks are often on-prem and have very, very particular needs. And so as a startup, we decided to not focus on them to start out with. Even though the problem is definitely there and we think it's an important one to solve, uh, we're not focusing on that segment at the moment. Got it. Super helpful. 
Shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk about hiring and specifically about exec hiring, which is hard. And we see it with many companies. And this is especially hard for a first-time founder. You recently hired your head of marketing, but you went about it in a very original way. Could you tell the audience how did you go about it? So hiring is super hard. And one of the things that as founders you spend the most time on, because the people that you hire ultimately are responsible for creating the magic that you need in the early days. And it's and it's amazing when you when you get those people, right? The other sort of problem is that, you know, it's not like I've done it before, right? It's not like I hired 10 head of head of whatever function. But I can certainly learn from other people's experiences. And so, you know, what what I did in this case and several other cases was actually look at who are the best companies in my industry and the best people in the profession who work in those companies and can I get their thoughts? Not only on who's the best person to hire, but also how can I find them? How should I interview them? How should I target them? How should I compensate them? All these things that they've obviously thought about for a very long time. And so those conversations have been incredibly helpful for me personally. And so, for example, for, for head of marketing, um, I actually reached out to some of the best CMOs in the data space and otherwise that I knew, some that I knew from a network and some literally in cold calls, like, hey, you know, would love your advice as a first-time founder. You're the best in this space and I'd love to learn from you on a five-minute call. And people are open to helping. And just ask them, how should I hire and who should I hire? And we were fortunate to, to hire some, some great folks through that process. That's so smart. You know, continuing to leverage networks and learn from people to help hone, you know, hone what you need. Did you use any of the, the marketing leaders that uh, helped you surface candidates also to help screen candidates for you? Great question. I actually, they helped me hone in on the process itself. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, how to design the assignment or how to evaluate the assignment. And then for the sort of our final candidates, they did actually go through additional interviews with those data leaders. So they helped both assess them and also close them when we were very excited about a candidate. Cool. Trilling down a little more on hiring diversity Obviously, diversity and inclusion are huge focus areas in the world right now. They certainly are at GGV, and I know they are at Monte Carlo. You've mentioned in the past you know, that it, it, it's hard for someone to become something that they don't see an example of out in, in the world already. And there really, you know, there are far fewer female founders in the world uh, than there should be right now, certainly in the enterprise space where Orn and I spend most of our time and where, where you're obviously playing. How do we change that? And you know, get to a world where gender equality is more is more a thing in the, in the startup founder world. Wonderful question, and definitely part of my decision to start Monte Carlo is is tied to to this reality, as you mentioned. Not not many female founders, and even less so in in data infrastructure and enterprise software in particular. You know, it's actually a very timely question, also because what comes to mind is Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, who just passed away, right? And I think she's an extremely positive example for many reasons, but first, because she set the bar so high for herself. Mm -hmm. She struggled to, you know, right? She started to graduate from, from Harvard Law when very few uh, female women were accepted to begin with. She struggled to, to get accepted to, to law firms, even though she was top of her class. And then she struggled with cases because there was very little public support. And yet, despite all of this, she was incredibly successful in her arena and she was ultimately able to change the system from within. And that had an impact that goes way beyond law and government. And so 
for founders, I think we need to create the most positive examples that we can so that more and more people recognize that it's possible and would want to follow. And so I think the best thing we can do for women is to basically build a massive company as soon as possible. And that's, that's what we're laser focused on, right? And of course, we have many opportunities to promote along the journey with like hiring a diverse team and featuring diverse speakers and leaders, basically creating sort of a new normal. But I wake up every day and think about how can I be the best example in my arena? How do I build the best company, you know, the most successful unicorn as fast as possible? And I think the way to create the world in which we have more female founders is by creating a great example of just wildly successful female founders. Well, we're 100% behind that. We'd love more female founders. And if if Monte Carlo becoming a huge success uh, helps drive that, then we will be killing many birds with one stone. And so <laughs> we're huge fans of what you're doing, Barr. And we've come to the time in the episode where we're putting you on the hot seat. We're going to ask you just some rapid fire questions just say the first thing that comes to mind. What's the best piece of advice you have for aspiring founders? Just do it. Don't look back. Don't ask questions. Just jump into it. Go for it. Best book or article you recommend to entrepreneurs? A book that's top of mind now. I don't know if it's the best, but it's just top of mind. I'm really enjoying it. It's called The Biggest Bluff. It's about a woman called Maria Konikova, who she was, I believe, a journalist by background and decided to learn how to become a poker player and ultimately, um, within a very short amount of time, became the world champion in poker. I'm personally a poker player, and so I both enjoy the book uh, because of that, but also because you can learn in her book, she talks a lot about how you can learn about life from a poker game. And I think you can learn about startups a lot from poker games. And so I actually really enjoy it, and I recommend that to founders. Good to know and did not realize you were an avid poker player. We'll have to uh, find time for a game. <laughs> Keep the stakes small, I think. You sound like a shark. <laughs> what do you like to do for fun? Not for data downtime, but real downtime from Monte Carlo. So I love watching movies. I actually, I go to this, like, you know, back when it was allowed to go to movie theaters, I actually go to movie theaters on my own. I'm a huge fan of Bruce Willis movies, but really I'm a sucker for most action uh, movies. And so I just, you know, when I have a free couple hours, I just go go to a movie and uh, really love that. That was actually our, our last question. We hear you're a big Bruce Willis fan. What is your best Bruce Willis film of all time? This is such a hard question. I'm unprepared for that. I can't. (laughs) I love the Die Hard series. I think you know those are kind of my all-time favorite. Probably they're uh, yeah, they're a winner every time. Die Hard. (laughs) Bar, this has been super, super. It's just been a great episode. I think people are going to love hearing all the wisdom that you've shared. Thanks so much for spending time with us. We're really looking forward to continue to work with you and learn from you, not play too much poker with you, and watch Monte Carlo become a hugely successful company. And it's been great to hear about the early parts of your journey. So thanks for sharing with us today. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. 
As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat. <laughs>